Good morning, everybody. Okay, so so consider all the different realms of existence in samsara, from the most unfortunate to the those of greatest fortune. And all the beings who are presently being born in those realms, aging in them and dying in them at this very moment. And although we don't know these, most of these sentient beings in their present incarnations, in previous incarnations they've been our dear friends and relatives and have benefited us and cared for us and supplied the necessities for our life over and over and over again. So when we think like this, all these innumerable sentient beings appear to our mind as friends and benefactors, not as people to fear. But as people who are helpful and kind. And whatever unkindness they have is due to their afflictions, not because they themselves are evil. And so in this way, cultivate compassion that wishes them to be free from their afflictions and love that wants them to have the happiness that comes from virtuous states of mind.
and then let that love and compassion fuel the bodhicitta motivation. And let that bodhicitta be your motivation for listening to teachings and putting them into practice. Okay, so we've been exploring um, joyous effort and the four powers for it, aspiration, steadfastness, joy, and relinquishment. And last week we finished the first one of aspiration. Yeah. Um, And Shantideva went into great detail about the benefit of aspiring for uh, virtuous actions and for full awakening, and the uh, disadvantages of letting our uh, aspiration flag and go downhill. Okay? Uh, So now we're on the topic of steadfastness. So steadfastness, so first of all, we can see the need for aspiration uh, to have joyous effort because joyous effort, you're putting forth energy to do something. And if you don't have a virtuous, if you don't have an aspiration, you won't put forth the benefit. You won't won't put forth the effort. And if you don't have a virtuous aspiration, your effort is not going to be directed towards something that is going to uh, bring the kinds of results that you want for yourself and others. And so aspiration is quite important in that way. And to really, uh, you know, b- keep building up our aspiration by doing all the, medi- the longer meditations. Yeah. We, we can't just sit, sit there and say, Okay, I should renounce samsara. I should generate bodhicitta. I should care for everybody. But samsara isn't that bad. And I really don't care for everybody, so why should I force myself? And Okay, birth, aging, sickness, death, that's part of the bag, but, you know, somehow it won't happen for a long time. And, uh, you know, and anyway, after I die, there's nothing. So, you know, I'll just enjoy this life. Yeah, so if we have those kind of thoughts in our mind, our aspiration is... And therefore, our joyous effort in practicing the Dharma is actually is going down. Okay, and we find ourselves more and more distracted, 
more and more, having more and more attachment to different things, yeah, having little energy for practice. Like, uh, you know, I used to really enjoy going to meditation, but now it's just, it's so boring. Yeah, my initial enthusiasm is all evaporated, you know, because when I started out, I had so much enthusiasm because right away I was changing and I could see the effects. And now it's just same old, same old. Yeah, in the morning I visualized Buddha. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay, I do that every morning. Then I say these words. Then I want to go back to bed. Yeah. So, you know, what can we do to help ourselves when our mind gets like that? Is it really that the path has become boring? Or is it that maybe we, you know, we were so thrilled at the beginning when we could see ourselves changing so much, and now, you know, we want instant results. And we don't realize that creating the cause yeah, entails doing all this other stuff, and then you experience the change. Yeah, okay? So it, it's like if a plant is growing, it's not like you plant the seed and then immediately there's the flower. It, the, the seed goes through all these things, you know, slowly, you know, kind of breaking its shell and slowly growing, and then it peaks up against the, the grass, you know, through the grass, and, you know, it keeps growing and this and that, and it's totally nothing. Nobody pays attention to it then. And then that goes on for a really long time when the seed is growing. And then the first day you see a little bit of color on one of the branches, yeah. Oh, look, it's a beautiful flowering plant. I love it, yeah. And you're so excited. But to get that, how long did you go through something that seems, you know, like nothing is happening, nothing exciting is happening, okay? So if this poor plant thought, well, nothing exciting was happening all those weeks and months, you know, and it just said, oh, you know, like I don't have even any little bit of color on me and nothing's happening. Yeah? And it just gave up growing then it's never going to have a beautiful flower on it. So something, you know, that that little seed needs to correct its expectations and realize, you know, you got to go through a whole process to get the result. So it's amazing when you think of it that we ever wound up finishing school because... 
if we started out at preschool saying, you know, nothing great is happening. You know, well, preschool is great. Yes, look, it's so exciting, and I can count, and I'm getting little stickers because I'm good. And then by the time you get to what is it? Now, even before that, fifth grade, fifth grade. Yeah, I taught fifth grade too. Yeah, fifth grade. Do I have to? This is boring. Yeah, I want to go out with my friends because they're doing excited, exciting things on the streets. And school is just, you know, boring. It's not exciting anymore. You have your social studies textbook. Remember? your social studies textbook. And on Friday afternoon, everybody took turns reading a paragraph. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wasn't that awful? (laughs) That was so awful. (laughs) Yeah. And then occasionally on Friday afternoons, you would have arts and crafts, which was okay if you could make a mess. And then you had singing some some Friday afternoons, which was fun for you, but listening to everybody else was really painful. Okay? So we just have to adjust our expectations instead of, you know, wanting to see progress all the time. Progress is happening, but it's not fireworks going off. Yeah, it's not fireworks going off. So, you know, we just go through it and create the cause. Okay, then steadfastness comes after uh, 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 aspiration. Because to generate aspiration, we need to be steadfast in our practice. And also, as a result of aspiration, we become more steadfast. Okay? So steadfast here means that we, uh, we'll get into it, but we think about what we commit to do, And when we commit to do it, we do it, and we finish it, okay? So we can see that the more clarity we gain and commit to things and then finish them, the more that gives us self-confidence, which fuels our aspiration, because we have more confidence we can do it. When we have more aspiration, then we have more wish to do it. So our our joyous effort increases, as does our confidence and our effort. Okay? So these two really help each other if you think about it. Okay, so steadfastness. Yeah, it's it's really this this one, I think. Well, all of them are really important, but this one, 
I think is so important. Otherwise, we don't get anywhere. And this includes in our just regular secular samsaric life, as well as in our dharma practice. Okay, so let's go into the steadfastness and see what it's about. So this is the last two lines in verse 46. Having undertaken the wholesome in the matter of uh, Vajra Dvajra, what's that? What's 28? Okay, here's a quote explaining that from the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra. For example, Devaputra, when the sun shines forth, it illuminates any suitable place without being turned back by such obstacles as blindness in people or uneven mountain formations. Likewise, when a bodhisattva shines forth for the sake of others, they ripen and liberate any suitable disciple and is not turned back by the various obstacles present in sentient beings. That's a beautiful quotation, isn't it? Yeah, the sun goes wherever it can, and if there are obstacles, you know, those obstacles are coming from outside, but that doesn't deter the sun from shining. And so similarly, when a bodhisattva is radiating forth their uh, compassion and their willingness to benefit sentient beings, that shines and ripens and liberates any suitable disciple, but it's not turned back by the... It doesn't get discouraged and give up when encountering the obstacles present in sentient beings. The sentient beings suffer because the obstacles come from the sentient beings, but the bodhisattvas don't suffer from that. Okay? Are you getting that? Okay. So I guess Vajra Dvaja was somebody who shone forth like that. Okay, so having undertaken the wholesome in the manner of that bodhisattva, I should then proceed to acquaint myself with self-confidence. So look what it is that gives us steadfastness. It's self-confidence. Okay? We sometimes think, oh, to be steadfast, I just need grit. You know, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to be steadfast. So, okay, here it goes. I'm going to muscle my way through this thing that I don't really want to do. Yeah, no, that's not what gets us to become steadfast. It's it's self-confidence that we can do it that nothing is going to set us back. So how do we develop this self-confidence? Verse 47 starts telling us how. First of all, I should examine well what is to be done to see whether I can pursue it or cannot undertake it. 
If I am unable, it is best to leave it, but once I have started, I must not withdraw. Okay, so first thing, we examine well what is to be done. Yeah. So maybe what is to be done is we took precepts, so what is to be done is to keep our precepts, maintain our ordination. Or maybe we're doing a project, yeah, and so we, or somebody asks us to engage in a project, then we have to look at the project and analyze, is this something that is worthwhile doing? Not necessarily for me in particular, but is this something in general that is beneficial to be done? Yeah, and um, if it is, then then to consider whether I should get involved in it, because there's many beneficial things that should be done that uh, maybe we don't have the talents for or the time for, okay? But first we analyze the, the uh, you know, the task. So it's similar with, you know, whether your task is to keep your precepts or to generate bodhicitta or, you know, not to let your bodhicitta degenerate, yeah, then we check it out beforehand. Is keeping precepts something beneficial? Is generating bodhicitta beneficial? Okay. Is building a Buddha hall beneficial? Yeah. Is, is cleaning out the storage room beneficial? Yeah. So, we check the task, and if it's beneficial, if it's beneficial, then we keep thinking about it. If we determine, you know, this is not beneficial, then already we don't really need to, to get involved. You know, somebody wants you to raise money to, uh, to buy, you know, to pay for more, uh, guns to send somewhere in the world. No, that's not beneficial, so we don't get involved in it, okay? Okay, so first we examine the task. Then we see whether we can pursue it or if we cannot. So this involves assessing, you know, evaluating, do I have the talents to do this, the abilities, the skills, the talents to do it, first part. And second part, do I have the time to do it and complete it? So the project may be very, very beneficial, yeah, but we don't have that particular skill. Okay? So making the sign uh, that says Shravasti Abbey, go straight for the office, go left for the parking, this kind of thing. Beneficial project, we need that. But I don't have the skills to do it. Yeah. So rather than saying, oh yes, I think that's great, uh, I'll do it. I say, no, there's other people who are much more skilled than me. And, you know, I will hand it over to them and encourage them. And maybe, you know, while they're doing the project, maybe I need to cook to support them 
or I need to do their chores to support them so they can work, put their energy on this useful project. Okay, so I evaluate. And some other things, you know, people ask me to do. Well, for example, this morning I just got an email asking me to write an article for a publication. So I'm in the process of evaluating it. Okay, it sounds interesting, but is if it is an article I write really necessary for it? Do I really have something valuable to contribute to it, or is that this uh, periodical or journal going in another direction, and what I say won't really matter very much? You know, it's beneficial in general. But, you know, can I really contribute something useful to it? So I'm in the process of, evalu of evaluating that. Also, you know, the due date is August 1st. Uh, yeah, which, you know, but, but she also wrote, you know, if this gives you problems, let me know. Um, so then I have to see, well, between now and August 1st, what do I have on my plate? And do I have the time to devote to thinking about this article and writing it and so on? Okay. So uh, I, d I haven't responded. I'm going to think about this. And I'm also going to call the person who wrote me the email and ask some questions, you know, because I really want to make sure, you know, the journal... The invitation sounds like a little bit more academic. It's, it's about writing an article about compassion. But it's asking a lot of people who are researching compassion and the brain and compassion and this stuff. And so I'm wondering, mm, you know, I'm not going to have any statistics. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to talk like a regular person, no fancy language, you know, I didn't, I don't really understand half of the invitation. You know, we want empir empirical, critical analysis. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Okay. Empirical. Do they want statistics? Critical analysis, analysis I can give from a Buddhist viewpoint, but not from an academic viewpoint. Yeah, and I don't really care about the academic viewpoint. That's I want to talk about what does it mean in your own heart to cultivate compassion, not is compassion beneficial, and these studies show that it is. Yeah, okay, because that's just my talent, my preference. What these people are doing, the academic research, very useful. That's what's going to get the idea of compassion into the universities and so on, which is really important for Dharma Buddhism to be accepted, you know, by that the people involved in that. But the people that I'm concerned with are not just those people, it's everybody, you know. So I'm gonna I would approach it. Is this the kind of thing they want? Okay, so yeah. So 
You examine well if the thing is beneficial. You see if you have the abilities to do it. And then you see if you have the time to undo to do it. Okay, so what's happening this summer? Well, there's a whole bunch of things lined up. Yeah, and in the middle of that, uh, can, can I write an article? They didn't say how many words. Okay, so I need to find this out. And then Shantideva says, but if I am unable, it is best to leave it. So it might be a great project. I might become famous if I engage in it. I might get paid a lot of money if I engage in it. Yeah. But if it's not really my ball game, then... It's best to leave it because if I s- try and do it, my heart's not in it and I'm, my feet, I'm going to drag my feet. Okay. So no matter what the task is, if it's, you know, taking higher ordination or taking the bodhisattva vow or, you know, vacuuming the floor, we assess. Okay. So w- we assess. You know, like this. One of the you know, list the criteria for if we should accept or not. Is it is the project worthwhile? Am I do I have the capability to fulfill it? And do I have the time to fulfill it? One of the criteria is not do I feel like it? Yeah. I don't know about you. But usually that's my number one criteria when there's something to do is, am I in the mood to do it right now? Do I feel like doing it? And if it doesn't pass that criteria, then the rest don't even matter. You know, I just leave it right away. But they didn't, you know, Shanti Deva doesn't put my foremost criteria in his list. It's not, do I feel like doing it? Yeah. Because so often I just don't feel like doing it. Yeah. I'd rather take a walk. I'd rather read a book. I'd rather, you know, do something else. I don't feel like doing this. Any of you have that? Yeah. And, and that thing of I don't feel like it, it stops us, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. So if I, if I am unable, it doesn't say if I don't feel like it, but if I am unable, I don't have the skills, I don't have the time, then it's best to leave it. Don't volunteer to do that. Yeah. Okay, because you volunteer, but yeah, if I volunteered to make that sign to hang there, uh, we're not going to have a sign because I think it's a great project and I would love to do it, but I'm going to put it off and put it off and put it off because I don't know what in the world I'm doing. Yeah, and that's not going to help anybody. 
whereas Shane is arriving today, and he knows how to do that, and he has the skill, and he'll do a much better job than I ever would. And he'll finish it, which, you know, me, I won't. Okay. And so there's nothing shameful in saying, you know, I can't do this. This is just where your talents lie and where they don't. Okay. So again, you know, if, if, uh, if a toilet breaks, if the electricity goes out, yeah, and somebody says, children, help fix the toilet. I'm going to go, oh, I can help. I'll call the plumber. That's what I can do. If you ask me to do anything more to fix it, no talent. Yeah, I have. All I know about toilets is how to flush them. Yeah? And I learned a little bit in, in when I, having to develop the Abbey about you know, water coming in and water going out, where it goes, and, you know, you need a septic system and things like that. But uh, aside from that, Venerable Lausong, help! <laughs> yeah, I can't do it. Okay. But, Shantideva says, but once I have started, so once I have said I'm going to do it, I must not withdraw. Okay? So you check and you analyze first. And once you accept to do it, you don't either not do it or do it half-hearted and then leave it and quit. Okay? Or start it and then realize you just don't have the time, so you stop in the middle. Okay? What are the disadvantages of being like that? Okay. Well, first of all, it's quite, we put other people in, we inconvenience other people. It's better to tell them at the beginning that we can't do that than to say, yes, we can. And then they're going along expecting us to do it. And then the day before, it needs to be finished, you know, they call and say, How, how's it going and do you have it? And we go, ah, uh, um, uh, uh, I didn't do anything. Okay, so I've worked in volunteer organizations most of my life, okay, where we are either volunteering or we are asking other people to volunteer and help. And I've seen what happens. Some people in the early days of FOSA, you may remember, there were some people who were so enthusiastic to, to help the Abbey. And, you know, and so we gave them different responsibilities, and then nothing got done. Yeah? So their enthusiasm for helping was definitely there, and that was virtuous, but it wound up to be very inconvenient 
because, you know, they didn't do it. And so then I wound up doing it. And instead of being able to start it early, I had to start it halfway through the time or at the very end. Okay. So when we volunteer and when we don't follow through, it's inconvenient for other people. Yeah. So that's why we check beforehand and we're honest about what we can and can't do. And if we can't do it, we say we can't. But remember, I don't feel like it is not the criteria when somebody is asking us to do something virtuous. Okay. We mistake I don't feel like it with I don't have the ability. So we say to the other person, oh, I really don't have the ability. But what we really mean is I don't feel like it. <laughs> okay. That... Mm, we need to, to look at our own mind when we do that. Yeah. Where is that way of thinking and acting? Where is that going to get us in our life? Mm-hmm. Okay, verse 48, if I do, in other words, if I do withdraw, if I, because the last one's once I have started, I must not withdraw. So if I do withdraw, then this habit will continue in other lives and wrongdoing and misery will increase. Also, other actions done at the time of its fruition will be weak and will not be accomplished. Okay, so if we start something and then give up part way, we are establishing a habit. And the power of habit cannot be undermined. That's why I don't feel like it doing it is such a difficult habit to break because we've gotten away with that for so long, you know, unless you had parents who saw through that and pushed you and got you to do it. Okay. So at the time you may have hated it. Yeah. But now I look back at the things my parents made me do and I'm actually quite glad because they taught me that I can do things I don't feel like doing. It's actually, that is a, a knowledge, a knowledgeable object. It's an existent phenomena doing things that I don't feel like doing. Yeah. And there is a valid cognizer for that. Yeah. But, yeah, the other is a no valid cognizer. Yeah, I don't feel like doing it, so that's, you know, I don't have to do it. There's many things in our life we don't feel like doing, aren't there? Yeah. So the thing is also when we evaluate first beforehand, then when we do it, we have joy in doing it, which is the third quality to develop in joyous effort, is having joy. If we don't and just evaluate and we just enthusiastically say yes, 
without checking. Then when we start, we go, ugh, I really, you know, this is not fitting for me, and I'm not really qualified. And then, you know, then we hear, oh, I shouldn't withdraw, and then we get into pushing. So I should push and push. And then there's no joy. Yeah. And when there's no joy, then we get resentful. We get discouraged. Okay. So to prevent all of that, think first. Yeah. And then, then we can be really happy doing it. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be difficulties doing it. Yeah, there may be difficulties doing it. There may be frustration. There may be obstacles. But underneath that is a feeling of happiness and joy, you know, because this is something really worthwhile. Okay. For example, building the Buddha Hall. Okay. So we have a little committee who is involved with the various aspects of it. Yeah. Have there been obstacles? Yeah. What do you say? Obstacles? Yeah. There's been obstacles, right? Have those obstacles been difficult? Some of them. Have you been tempted to be discouraged and just say, I think I'll back out and somebody else can take over and do this. Sometimes, maybe. No. Okay. Is this a project worthwhile doing? Yes. Does that help you power through the discouragement? Because underneath there's a sense of joy in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Some days do you feel like just going and screaming at the top of your lungs in frustration? Yeah, okay, yeah. You and I will go scream together. (laughs) It's like, what? Okay, you want to pass through the microphone? The idea that we might, you know, what keeps me going is we have to build this when you're alive. (laughs) The notion that if we wait till after that, I don't know, I would cry. (laughs) So you know what? We're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we need to, to do it for sending beings. More and more people are coming here. Yeah. And we definitely need more space. It's like, how long can we have teachings in the dining room? <laughs> yeah, we've been doing it for a few years already. Yeah, we need a Buddha hall. Yeah, And yes, it's a huge, enormous project, but we signed up for it because it's worthwhile. Yeah. Okay, so... We're not going to back off, even though she and I sometimes go in the upper meadow (laughs) and scream. (laughs) You ready? When do you want to go? After class today? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. The other thing is that we've been spending at least three years now in this planning process, and that gives us some fortitude. So, of course, things are going to come up. And that planning that we've done and discussing and talking about details like you wouldn't believe about some things, that that just gives us momentum. Yeah. Yeah. And we've done this much. You know, we're not going to give up now. I mean, when we've had to decide on the kind of doorknobs we want before the contractor will even give us a proposal, you know, those details. I mean, do you ever think of what kind of doorknobs you want before you build a building? Yeah. You do? Yeah, yeah, she would. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for me, I'll think about the doorknobs when it comes time to put them in, but not before, because I have other things to think about before. Okay, my I plan things, but not to that detail. Okay, so next time we build something, you're going to be on the committee. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah. This is so you do it, and, and it's hard, and it can be frustrating, but it's for a really, really good purpose. Yeah. So you you keep doing it. Yeah. Sorry, one, one last thing. I was, what helped me to say sometimes reading Buddhist history, right? It's like communists took over someplace, temples get destroyed, fire burn. And, you know, it's like one line in the historical record. So-and-so found this temple destroyed and he spent 50 years rebuilding it. It's yeah. like, what else would you do? You have to rebuild it. Yeah. So as long as it takes, we have to do it. Right. The thing is, you know, so often we'll read the hagiographies of great masters and, you know, they built a temple, and we just think, oh, they built a temple. They went out there. They had so many volunteers, so many helpers that they just coordinated it and sat in their room, and everybody else took care of it. They, You know, we don't hear the background story of what goes on when these great teachers do things, yeah, and what they have to go through to do things. And those are actually the things that need to be in the story. Yeah. So we have somebody who wants to write a, a history so far of, of the Abbey. And this is the kind of stuff that needs to be in it so that people understand that it isn't just, you know, you have a great idea and then boom, it all comes together. Because I think reading, I know for me, when I read the stories of what people go through to do things, it gives me a lot more strength to accomplish it rather than the stories of, you know, oh, well, they, you know, they took precepts and they never broke a precept after that. <laughs> well, I rejoice for them, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, if the, if you told me their difficulty in keeping some of the precepts, you know, and how they cultivated fortitude and joyous energy, joyous effort, that would help me. Yeah. So, but different people are different, you know. 
I like hearing about the the troubles and travails of people. And other people just want to hear, oh, yeah, they did it. It sounds easy, and that gives them encouragement. So anyway, okay. So if if we say we're going to do something and then we don't do it, yeah, it's inconvenient to other people. Uh, And... Also, it sets up the habit for us, not only in this life, but in future lives, to start things and never accomplish them. And I have one friend who is, he's he's really brilliant, and he has so many good ideas. And I've known him for years and years and years, and the ideas don't get accomplished. They get started. And then partway through, dropped for one reason or another. Yeah, But he is really brilliant. And if he could stay with it and carry through some of those things to the end, it would be really wonderful. Yeah, But that's the kind of thing I think, oh, you know, maybe what's inhibiting is that in the past, starting things and stopping. Starting things and not completing yeah. So to be really careful about that, because that kind of habit, yeah, we may think, oh, backing out now, shoo, I don't have to do that. But it brings a result later on that creates so many obstacles for us. Yeah, And we already have enough obstacles being in samsara. Why give ourselves more? Okay. Okay, so this habit will continue in other lives and wrongdoing and misery will increase because in my future lives or even later in this life, if I continue to start and then not fulfill what I've committed to do, yeah, then sometimes I might lie to get out of it. I might get involved in all sorts of negative actions to cover up my lack of completing the action. So there's a long, lot of wrongdoing that happens. And misery, which is, you know, I, fl- I become a flake. I flake out on other people, and then other people don't, don't trust me. And, and you know, they, they know they can't count on me because I'm going to flake, probably. Okay, so those are the disadvantages, plus other actions done at the time of its fruition. So even in future lives, yeah, when uh, we're experiencing the result of not finishing what we've started in this life, we're experiencing it, you know, not finishing in future lives what we started, okay, all the actions I do are going to be weak because I, I haven't, I don't have the strength of mind, the strength of aspiration, the strength of fortitude to, to finish it out. So even in the future, you know, if I try and do things and finish the task, task, yeah, my efforts are going to be weak and chances are, you know, I'll flake out again. Yeah, and it won't be accomplished. And then, you know, people don't trust me and, and so on and so forth. 
Okay? Because I think, I don't know about you, but when I think of what qualities um, make me, you know, help me to trust somebody, yeah, one of the qualities is they keep their word. Yeah, when they say they're going to do something, they do it. When they say they're not going to do something, you know, like I tell them something confidentially and they say, okay, I won't spread it, and they keep that, then I, you know, they trust them. I trust them, yeah? So for me, yeah, keeping your word is is a big uh, factor in learning to trust people. I don't know. What do you think? Is it for you? Yeah? So we always think of, you know, who do I want to trust? But we also have to think, am I a trustworthy person? Yeah, or how can I become a trustworthy person? We want people to trust us, but then if we act in ways that aren't worthy of them trusting us, then why should they? Yeah, and you can see, it becomes so obvious, the problems when uh, we don't trust people but go along with things anyway, Okay, like there's a good, uh, uh, there's a somebody who seems really reasonable, and but there's some red flags, and you ignore the red flags and trust them anyway. Or there's a project that seems really good, but there's some red flags because it seems like people are biting off more than they can chew, but you go along with it anyway, ignoring the the red flags. Yeah, then, you know, trusting when it's it's not appropriate then really brings a lot of difficulties. Okay. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't trust people. I think we should go on the basis of people are telling the truth and I want to trust them. And then, so you start on the basis of people who are trustworthy. And then if they show behavior or speak words that, that aren't, then you subtract the trust rather than approaching them as everybody's dangerous, nobody's trustworthy, and they're going to have to jump through hoops and, you know, do trapeze acts to get me to trust them. Okay, I think it's better to go forward, you know, with a, with a good idea about sentient beings. Yeah, and then okay, if things happen, then you back off rather than I don't trust anybody. They're all dangerous. They're all fearful. They're all going to screw me. Oh, I'm not supposed to say things like that, am I? Yeah, but you know. So rather than than having that attitude about people. Okay, 49. Self-confidence should be applied to wholesome actions, okay, not unwholesome actions. So it's not that an unwholesome action looks good and you have the ability to do it and you have the time to do it and you have the self-confidence that you can bring it to fruition, 
Okay, I'm going to embezzle this money, you know, and I know how to cook the books and I know how to get around it. And I have the aspiration. I have the joyous effort. You know, I'm going to embezzle and nobody's going to, you know, it's, it's kind of like, oh, you know, I, I mentioned to you about this, um, what just happened in Alabama. Um, with the prison, uh, staff, you know, she was assistant something. She was very high up in the ranking who, uh, ran off with one of the, the guys who is in for capital murder. And, you know, um, she was trusted and had high regard. People said she was a model employee. But she really broke that trust. Yeah. And she had great confidence in pulling it off because she knew how the prison, she was the one who did most of the planning because he was incarcerated. He couldn't, you know. Um, but she knew how the prison system operated. She knew what time people left to drive inmates places. She arranged to uh, leave, you know, to tell people she had to leave later so that she could be the only one driving him, whereas they had a policy of two people had to be in the car to drive him somewhere. So she arranged it at that time. She uh, sold her house very quickly, had a lot of money, went shopping for clothes that he could change into. Um, bought a new car and parked it at the, you know, where they were going to leave the patrol car, everything. You know, she had the self-confidence to pull it off. And she pulled it off. Yeah, for 11 days. And then they found them. Yeah. And... uh they found, should I tell the rest of the story? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so they were in Tennessee and the, well, they, they left the patrol car in the parking lot of a, a shopping center nearby the prison. Then they got as far as Tennessee. They abandoned that car. Okay. Some people said maybe the car had car trouble, but I wonder if, you know, they abandoned it and somebody else picked them up. Anyway, they finally got somewhere else where they bought a truck. Okay. And then they drove to Evansville, Indiana, who I'm sure everybody knows where that is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Everybody does now. Evansville has, has a, uh, a reputation. And they drove there. And they were in a car wash with the truck and the, um, uh, what do you call it? The camera that was there recorded him with the truck. And so somehow somebody called the cops. Okay. They actually left the truck at the car wash. And they had another car, a Cadillac, that they drove away from the car wash in. And they went to a motel, 
Okay. Where they had paid for 14 days um, accommodation. They had been there for about six. And uh, the cops, you know, they knew that they knew that they left the truck and they knew that they had this Cadillac and some uh, other off-duty cop or somebody saw the Cadillac parked at the motel and called the police. And then they, the police, you know, surrounded and watched and everything. And then she came out at one point wearing a wig. Yeah. Got into the car. He got into the car and they drove away. Okay. And of course, the police followed them as they were driving away. And, uh, you know, so there was the, the car race and everything like that. And then, um, he, you know, they had actually planned that, it, you know, if they were in that situation with a, a car chase with the cops, that they were going to shoot out. They were going to have a shootout with the cops, you know, and see if they could still get away with it and still going. Well, they didn't have a chance to have the shootout because one of the car, cop cars um, rammed into the side of their vehicle, which sent them rolling Okay, um, they were able to get him, he was driving, they were able to get him out of the car, yeah, but it seems like around that time after, at a certain point in that, she uh, put a gun to her head, yeah, and when they finally pulled her out of the head, uh, out of the car, she was they're, you know, in bad shape. They took her to the hospital. She died a few hours later. Okay. So you can have the confidence and the skill and the aspiration and the time and energy. But if you do what is not virtuous, if it's for a non-virtuous project, this is a very good example of what you wind up with. Okay. And it's really sad, you know, they, he's arrested again and uh, they're shipping him back to Alabama. And, you know, and the, um, the sheriff there says he is going in solitary. He's going to be shackled even in solitary, hand shackled, leg shackled. You know, and if anybody tells me that I'm, that I'm denying him his rights, so be it. This guy is not getting out of prison again. That's what the sheriff said. Okay. Um, yeah, so he, he's going to have some trouble. And she is in some other realm. We have no idea which one. The mental state she died in, you know, so difficult. Yeah. And this is all due to the power of afflictions. Yeah. It wasn't the power of virtuous mental factors. Yeah. This was the power of afflictions. And you can see how, how much they mess up people's lives. Okay. So self-confidence should be applied to wholesome actions. 
the overcoming of disturbing conceptions. I think that means afflictions. So we should have, and my ability to do this, thinking I alone shall do it, is the self-confidence of action. Okay, so self-confidence is applied to wholesome actions, first thing. Second thing, to have self-confidence that I can deal with my afflictions. Yeah? Not that I can banish them, you know, uh, in, in 15 seconds of meditation, but, uh, you know, that I have the confidence, I've learned the techniques, I know it's going to take time, but I have the confidence to apply the techniques no matter how many times I have to uh, apply these antidotes, I will do it to overcome the affliction. So I have that confidence. You know, if you think I have the confidence to dispel my afflictions by next Tuesday, that's not very practical. But to apply the, uh, the antidotes repeatedly over time until you're successful, yeah. That's a reasonable thing to have self-confidence in. If we don't have self-confidence in it, we're not going to even apply the antidotes. Anger comes up, hopelessness comes up, you know, we just go, nothing to do. Nothing to do. This whole thing is not working for me. I give up. Yeah, no self-confidence. Because we have too high expectations. Yeah, or because we don't feel like it. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, you know, when I have so much attachment or anger, it just takes so much energy to apply the antidote. Yeah, I mean, it takes energy. It takes mental energy. We're sitting there. We don't have to lift a finger. Yeah, but mental energy to apply the antidote. Oh, oh, I'd much rather read a comic book, you know? Okay. Okay, so a confidence to wholesome actions, to overcoming afflictions, and to our ability to do this. Yeah. Yes, it's going, it will take energy to overcome the afflictions, but I've been fortunate to have teachers and teachings, and I've heard the antidotes. I know what they are. I have the time to meditate on them right now and strengthen them in my mind so that in the future, when those uh, afflictions come up, I will already have some practice in the antidotes and that I can apply at that time. Okay. And, And I have the confidence that I can do that in my daily meditation. Yeah. Instead of thinking, well, I don't have that affliction arising right now, so I don't need to meditate on the on the antidote. I'll meditate on the antidote after that affliction comes. Okay? Uh-uh. Yeah. That's like saying, um, I don't know how to drive, and I don't feel like like uh, you know, going to driver's ed right now. But uh, when I go to the DMV to get my license, then I will learn how to drive. Really? 
Are you going to pass your driving test if you go to the DMV and you're totally unprepared? Uh-uh. Okay, so that's why we need to meditate on the antidotes in our daily practice and think of situations in the past, you know, and then think in your meditation, oh, okay, if that kind of thing happens again, now how can I think instead of going back to my old habit? How can I think? What antidote do I apply in this situation and in that way, you help to really resolve things from the past, yeah. Because you you think of you know what do what if this happens again, what can I do? Which is a process of telling ourselves, yes, I have the ability, and yes, I have the responsibility, yeah, to to do this. It's not just a thing of I wait until it happens and then. Uh, good luck. Yeah, it, it's it's like you know why did we get vaccinated from COVID? Because we don't want to wait until we get COVID to to try and and get it cured. Yeah, we want to get vaccinated, and then you get boosted, and then you get boosted again, and you wear your mask when it's necessary, and then you have the self confidence, and you don't get sick. But at the beginning, if you think, you know, I got to drive into town and it takes so long, you go to Safeway and you wait for, how long did we wait? Half an hour? 45 minutes? Uh, You know, and we talked to this very nice person from the community. We heard about her whole life. And, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah, and... You know, it's just, I don't feel like doing that. So I'll just take my chances. And if COVID comes my way, well, then I'll deal with it. Not so smart. Okay. So, um, yeah, we have the confidence that we'll do it. Then the last two lines, okay. Thinking I alone shall do this is the self-confidence to action. This is Lama Sopa's favorite line. I alone will go to the deepest hell to save the sentient beings there. Yeah. And you're sitting there like, and Rinpoche says, think like this. And you go, okay, I alone will go to the deepest hell. I don't want to go to the deepest hell. And if I have to go, can I have a bunch of friends come with me? And once I get there, I'm supposed to help these sentient beings, but they're so thick-skulled, there's nothing I can do because they're burning and hot iron and this is doomed. And he wants me to say, I'm going to do it alone. Yeah. Yeah, we can tell who's been at one of Lama Sopa's <laughs> talks when he said that, you know. It's like, and he means it. He means it. He's not joking. He means it. Because this is the way he practices, you know. And you build up that confidence. 
somehow. And this is the thing about aspiration. Aspiration gives, you know, aspiration helps you build up the confidence to be able to do it. Okay? Because initially we may not have the confidence to do it or the ability, but we have to build that up, you know. And so bodhisattvas make these incredible aspirations as a way of building up the confidence to benefit sentient beings. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story now. So for a long time, I wanted to start the Abbey. Yeah. And I wanted some. I wanted to do it together with somebody else because I don't know anything about plumbing and electricity or about buying property and interest rates and escrow. I don't know anything about any of this. Okay, yeah. Whenever my parents talked about it, I thought it was boring. I tuned tuned it out. I ordained when I was young. I never owned a car. I never owned a house. Okay, so I'm totally unfamiliar with all this kind of stuff. And, but, so I wanted somebody else to do the project with me. And, you know, and hopefully a few people. So at one point, uh, when I was in uh, Wisconsin, you know, the nuns uh, at Geshe's Opus Course, we were talking, and there was some energy to, to start a monastery there. So we went to speak with Geshe's Opus. It was a beautiful afternoon, and there was, uh, he was sitting outside, and we bought flowers and went and bowed and offered the flowers on this beautiful sunny day and told him our idea. And of course, Geshe was delighted. So it was very uplifting. And then we went back to the house, and uh, one of the nuns said, well, uh, I'm working on my PhD, and I'm helping to build the temple here. I don't have time to do this. Another nun said, uh, I have to go to work, because she was working. She didn't have, that's how she got money to live. So I don't know, I have time to do it. And another one said, I'm going to go do three-year retreat. I don't have the time to do it. So that left you know who, okay, who said, I don't have any help, so let's just put this on the back burner. Okay, then time went by, and uh, and then I worked with this Theravada monk, thinking, and the Chinese monks, we were going to do something with three traditions, you know, he was the Theravada, I was the Tibetan, and then we had, we were going to a Chinese monastery to do it. And it's like, okay, now there's people helping me, and we're going to go do this. And it didn't really work out, okay, Uh, for a multitude of reasons, which I won't go into. It wasn't just one or two reasons. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just not the right time and not the right group of people, and a difficult aspiration, although virtu- it was definitely virtuous. Okay, so then I have nowhere to live because I have to leave Missouri, okay? And, uh, you know, and then Don, uh, Dan invited me to Idaho, and I said, Idaho? <laughs> 
you know, all they have in Idaho is potatoes. <laughs> That's all Idaho's famous for. Well, but, you know, you don't have a place to live, and there's a Dharma group that wants teaching, so okay, you go to, you go to Idaho. Then Dan and I drove all over South and Central Idaho looking for properties. Yeah, um, we, we um, made um, bids on two of the properties. They were turned down, thank goodness. Okay, and then uh, this person named Barbara who lived in northern Idaho, she and her friend Susan uh, went looking up here, you know, and I had seen this, uh, they had recommended a realtor, and I had seen this picture of this house with windows, and I love windows, you know, as if you haven't noticed. And, and you know, let's look at it, but oh, it costs too much, it's way above, but let's go look at it anyway, okay? So then I come up here with another friend who had been a monk but is no longer, and we checked it out, and, you know, and, uh, oh, I left out a big step in this. How could I, about I myself alone? So back up, okay? Back up. After, uh, it, you know, when it, it, it was somewhere, I think, it was before I went to Idaho, okay? So it wasn't working out in Missouri, or I had just gone to Idaho, and it was looking like that wasn't going to work out in south-central Idaho. So I was in Dharamsala for His Holiness's teachings, and I went to meet Rilbu Rinpoche. And, uh, you know, he's a very well-respected lama. And I kind of told him the story because I, at that point, was like, should I really continue trying this or should I just realize that this is, you know, I don't have the support, I don't have all the causes and conditions now to do it. You know, specifically, somebody else to start it with. Yeah, because I don't have the skills to do it alone. So I went to ask Rinpoche, and, you know, should I continue? Or do I? And he looked at me and he said, you do this by yourself. <laughs> you know, that that's on the level of when Lama Yeshe looked at me and said, you're selfish. You know, he said, you do this by yourself. God. <laughs> what do I do? Okay, so I filed that away somewhere. <laughs> you know, filed it away. Maybe sometime. Yeah. Anyway, so then I went to Idaho. South didn't work out in South Central Idaho. Okay, and I'm really glad that both of the places we made bids on were the bids were rejected, you know. Then came up here, and we found this place. So Rinpoche, do it alone. Okay, Rinpoche. So it's me and, you know, Achala and Manjushri. The cats named Achala and Manjushri. <laughs> 
not the deities named Achala and Manjushri, although I think they may have been, you know, involved in it in some way. Um, yeah, so we signed the con. We had to take out uh, a mortgage with the owner, which, he, I mean, this was the thing that enabled us to do it, very kind of, of um, Harold. And Harold is why we have the truck named Haroldina. It was his truck. Okay. Okay. So we signed the mortgage. And I remember sitting there because we had to pay $1,700 mortgage a month. Yeah. And it's me and two cats. And there was Fosas there who wanted to help. But, you know, they were not going to pay the mortgage. You know, they, they were going to come up up and help with different things like this. And I remember sitting there going, Buddha, <laughs> help, what have I done? You know, how is this going? How we in the world are we going to pay a mortgage? Yeah, because you realize this is a person who's never owned anything that costs more than a hundred dollars in her whole life, you know, never bought anything with credit, nothing. I never used credit because I didn't have much to buy, you know. I worked and my, you know, and then I spent what I earned on, you know, row and board. Okay. So sitting there, how in the world is this going to happen? Yeah. So, Whenever I read this verse, therefore, you know, I alone shall do it. It's like, I was nuts. But actually, it wasn't nuts. It happened, you know, and it happened through the kindness of a lot of people who enabled us to pay the mortgage. And we actually paid the mortgage off early and saved a lot of money in interest. How in the world did that happen? Yeah. Again, the kindness of mother sentient beings. Okay. So there's something to this line of thinking, I alone shall do it, is the self-confidence of action. Because having told people that I was doing it when I was working with the Theravada monk and the Chinese monastics. And we had sent out an inviting generosity letter, and some people had sent in donations. After doing that, I couldn't not do it. Even though we split and didn't work together, we divided the whatever donations had come up, we divided them. So I had a little bit of money, but I couldn't go back to those people who had given the money for the project and say, I'm not doing it. That was not an option. Yeah. And so that's when I remembered Rilby Rinpoche. <laughs> you do it alone. Okay. I bit it off, I better chew it. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, but thing, things worked out okay. Yes. I have to say, Venerable, though, that you kind of blew the first two things out of the water. Like um, the first one is examine the task. Are you up for it? Second one, do you have the talent, skills, and ability? I mean, what you're endeavoring to do, you went on your aspiration. You went on Reba Rinpoche's directive. But on in a worldly terms, going through the criteria on how you proceed with things you didn't have you didn't have some of the criteria. Yeah, so, that's why I wanted somebody else to work with who had those abilities. But it didn't come out like it didn't end up like that. So there's there's the aspiration, there's the the, the steadfastness, the joy. But there's something else in there. There's the karma. <laughs> I mean, there's there's the karma, and there's the willing to jump willingness to jump off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. You know. There's times when you just have to jump off that cliff. But the but the <laughs> but to to propel you off the cliff is not necessarily explicit in the process of how you do these things because yeah. you you you're there's a lot of places in here where you jumped off the cliff with just the sheer determination knowing that this was something you needed to do. To do. Yeah. So that, the aspiration yeah, that, yeah, was driving true. a lot of it and the stead, yeah. steadfastness was driving a lot of yeah. it for you. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the, you know, I'm usually not a big one for prayers, you know, I'm, I'm more for doing the actions that create the cause rather than praying for it to happen. But I got put in that situation of creating the cause and praying, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, I mean, when you get that more, that, that thing every month about, pay your $1,700, you know, prayers are not going to pay it. Yeah. But maybe you needed prayers to create the causes to be able to pay it. I don't know. It was crazy times. Income reported for 2003 was $419,000. Donations. Donations in 2004, $293,000. So from the beginning, <laughs> somewhere there was, I mean, there was the, the, the energy that what you were saying, that many people were already interested in what you were doing, yeah. that kind of energy came forward. Yeah. And that's why I said the kindness of mothers. Yeah, exactly. Things, exactly. Because yeah. the, the, the money yeah. to do this came from others. Yeah. It was just, uh, I just thought, oh, I wonder, I wonder how it really looked. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that much coming in. <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, no, you're misreading the numbers you're adding. <laughs> yes. You identified what one quality that helps you trust people, but people are just ordinary beings. We make mistakes. We're under the power of afflictions and karma. Mm -hmm. So what are some ways that trust has been restored for you when it's happened in the past where it's been broken? What, what have people done to restore your trust? Mm. Okay. Let me let, just back up because you mentioned about before I answer that question, because when I had to leave Missouri, yeah, 
and there were nothing, no prospects in sight. Uh, as one, I, I was going to Cloud Mountain to lead a retreat that had already been scheduled. And as one of uh, the participants said, uh, you came back here with your tail between your legs. Yeah, because it hadn't worked out and I had, you know, sold people on the idea or enthused people on the idea. And I had to admit, yes, you know, I'm, I'm scared. I don't know. Not scared, but, you know, uh, yeah, I'm in a real difficult position right now. But it all worked out. Okay, now your question, how to restore trust once it's been broken. What I do is, even if, if it's with somebody else who's broken my trust, is I usually back off and then I watch their actions, you know, and maybe give them something small to do and see if that gets fulfilled, if they complete it, you know, or if, if they do what they're going to say. So I'll, I'll, I try and, and, you know, see, okay, maybe that was a bad situation, but maybe, you know, people grow and change. So, okay, let's give another chance, but I'm not putting all my, ba all my eggs in that basket. Yeah, I'm going to watch and, and see if they've changed and if they can fulfill that. You know, if it were a really huge break of trust, something that, uh, in my mind, you just do not do, so like a really serious, serious break of trust, then I, I really back off. You know, it's, it's hard to give, you know, another chance. But what I find is very interesting, because I do prison work, I'll give the people who haven't harmed me directly, but have harmed other people, I see their possibility for change, and I definitely give them another chance. Yeah, but I haven't had somebody do that kind of action to me. Of course, if somebody killed me, I couldn't really give them another chance, could I? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it depends on the situation. Some people, if, if the trust was broken, I will talk with them about what happened. Yeah. And see if I can get the, the backstory around it and see if they realized it or not. In one case where I can think somebody betrayed my trust, I realized afterwards it was it was a cultural thing that in their culture it was okay to do this in my culture it wasn't and this comes in some in some cultures what we consider lying in the west they don't consider lying yeah so a friend had lied to me about something that he didn't need to be lied to me about you know, it wasn't a big deal. But because it was a lie, I was really like, 
oh, the trust is broken. And then I realized, but wait, he's from this culture, and that's the way they do things. I don't agree with that way of doing things. I was raised in a different way. But it, it, it was, you know, that's the way they do things, and they don't consider it lying. Okay. So, you know, it, it depends a lot on the situation, what, what it is. Sometimes it's me changing my mind. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, them showing that they can be responsible afterwards. Sometimes they apologize. I usually don't count on apologies. Yeah, but sometimes. Okay. Okay, so we better close. We've gone over time. So we left it with, and I alone shall do it. So, so you know, building an abbey much easier than going to the hell realms for the sake of one sentient being. So, you know, we kind of build things up gradually and go through the bumps gradually. But really, Rinpoche, this time really, can I have a friend go with me? It will help. I don't know anything about the lower realms and how to navigate them. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.